Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 26, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the just-released book, The God Who Fights For You. And last year, the book Spiritual Grip has two devotions that are tied to it as well, one for adults, one for teenagers. And a couple years before that, the, the Jesus-Centered Life, which really sort of launched, birthed this podcast. Uh, the book is really about what would your life look like if everything in your life tied back to Jesus, everything in your life orbited around him, not because that's what you're supposed to do in a religious way, but because you're, you've been so captured by his heart that everything in your life ends up orbiting around him. And that book sort of led to this podcast. And the, the title kind of says it all, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, is really we're slowing down and paying better more specific attention to the most influential person in history. And that's true whether you're uh, a believer in Jesus as the Son of God or whether you don't. Uh, Historians believe that Jesus was the most influential person affecting all of history ever. There's a great book called Who Is This Man that I've mentioned many times in the podcast by John Ortberg that sort of takes that tack. It just explores how did Jesus impact all of history, whether or not you believe he's God. So what we do on the podcast is we slow down, pay attention to him, and learn from him because most Americans, believe it or not, their primary description of Jesus is Jesus is a nice guy. And as soon as I hear somebody say that, I know, well, you've never read anything he said or did because you can't categorize him that way. So we slow down and pay attention to the real Jesus. We're right now in the middle of a series. This is the sixth episode in a new series that will probably extend at least through the summer, maybe even a little bit in the fall. We'll see. It's called Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions. And it comes out of a project I did for the Jesus-Centered Bible, which I was the general editor of. Uh, We were trying to brainstorm and think of new features, more features that we could add into this Bible that would help people focus their attention on Jesus no matter where they were. And we got this idea that, well, what if we examined what are the most essential questions of all human beings, sort of the questions that all other questions kind of end up residing underneath. What if we tried to narrow those down to their essentials? And what I came up with was nine, nine essential questions that all human beings have. What I did was I read through the gospels and every time I saw Jesus answering one of those questions, I would stop and consider what he was doing and then write a little kind of sidebar there. So those little boxes are scattered throughout the four gospels of the Jesus Center Bible. And today's question is number six on that list. Will everything be okay? And the reason this question is universal is obvious. Everything is not okay. Everything is not okay in our world. And no amount of money or fame or friends or job security can really guarantee that that not okayness is not going to track us down like a predator. So on this episode, the Beckinator is usually with me on this particular episode, but she's on vacation. So I am thrilled to have as a super sub, my daughter, Lucy, who you've heard a couple of times, two or three times on the podcast in briefly, but today she's going to be on the entire episode. So she just got back from six weeks 
of serving at Camp Barnabas, which is a camp in Missouri for special needs adults and young people. She's still in her zombie phase, trying to recover from the exhaustion of those six weeks. But she's going to join us today for the whole episode. Lucy, you can now. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. And actually, they're not the ones that gave you permission to be on that. Oh, thank you for having me, Dad. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Lucy is a cabin staffer at Camp Barnabas, which is a, a leadership position there, which means that uh, you're normally speaking, if you go to serve one of these campers, you're, you're on for 23 hours a day. I think you could probably safely say Lucy was on for 24 hours a day <laughs> because as a staffer, she had to step in whenever there was a crisis or somebody needed help um, in addition to her regular stuff. So Lucy, could you give us like a one minute description of the camp and what you do there? Camp Barnabas is yeah a huge part of my heart. And basically what it is, is we have about 200 um, kids or adults with special needs that come in every single week. A week of camp looks like um, we have cabins with about eight to 10 campers in each cabin and then eight to 10 high schoolers who volunteer and they're partnered one-on-one -on -one with each camper and spend 23 hours a day serving their camper all week. And then my role is I'm a cabin staff. So me and my co um, are in charge of the entire cabin. So all the missionaries and all the campers in that cabin. Um, and we're also working 23 hours a day. So leading the cabin through all of the camp things, dealing with anything that um, is more challenging or campers that um, are struggling or going into crisis. Um, we're also a huge part of our job is speaking into the high schoolers. We call them missionaries, speaking into their lives um, because this is something they've never done before, lots of them, and they're serving selflessly, which a lot of them have never done. And so it's our role as cabin staff to lead a Bible study for them every night and to walk with them. And it's one thing to learn in training how to transfer somebody who's in a wheelchair. But then if you're a missionary and you have a camper who's 200 pounds and a quadriplegic and you have to move them to their bed, that's very intimidating. And so our job as cabin staff is to walk alongside them and show them this is how we do it so that by the end of the week they can do it without our help and to kind of be that catalyst for change as the week goes on. And Lucy is not yet 21 years old. <laughs> it's amazing. I, in a month, I'll be 21. Yeah. And this, this camp literally runs on the energy, enthusiasm, and all-in willingness to serve that young people have that bring to the table. It's, it's remarkable. So uh, I thought it would be fascinating for us to talk about this because Lucy has such a wide, varied experience between the pressure of being a college student that she has a job at school. She serves during the summer at this extremely demanding camp. And all of these things sort of reflect what real life is like because she's plunged into situations all the time where you have to wonder, is everything going to be okay here? Is everything going to be okay <laughs> yeah. for the people I'm serving? Is everything going to be okay for me? Uh, so that's what we're going to explore today. And I thought one of the, 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 pieces of context we need to focus on first is the wider context of our culture, which is the most affluent society in the history of the world. Now, here's, here's kind of an incongruence with that. Um, there has never been a more affluent society from top to bottom in the history of, of Earth. And yet, right now in our culture, we have a huge problem with depression, worry, and anxiety. It's an epidemic, actually. And it's not confined just to young people. So here's an interesting little tidbit. In a 2012 study by the U.S. government, that it found that the richer the neighborhood, the higher the risk of suicide. 
So suicide is now the fourth leading cause of death among those who are middle-aged. That's uh, like ages 35 to 54. It's the fourth leading cause of death. And it's the number one cause of death among young adults, 18 to 34. So the two most privileged generations in American history are the millennials and Gen Z. And Lucy, you're at the sort of the, the tail end of the Gen, uh, Gen Z, right before, I mean, yeah. you're the tail end of millennials right yeah. before Gen Z. So the, you're right in the middle of the, the margin line between the two most privileged generations in American history. Um, but despite those incredible economic advantage, advantages, you are you and your friends are nevertheless facing this like unprecedented mental health crisis yeah. found this found this quote from uh arizona state psychology professor sunia luthar who studies resilience and her work reveals that affluent teenagers represent the most emotionally distressed subpopulation in america here's what she says these kids are incredibly anxious and perfectionistic so uh, that's her summation of an entire generation, incredibly yeah. anxious and perfectionist. Yeah. And you're saying, yeah, Lucy, you see, this, <laughs> you see this all around you, right? Yes, all around me, especially in college, but really everywhere. Um, this past year, I saw a staggering amount of girls around me who were dealing with mental health things, everything from throwing up before a test because they were so nervous to like not being able to function because they were so anxious or depressed. And it shocked me this year more than ever. I've seen it present. Yeah. And so the dichotomy, the tension here is, wow, we think that with all of these benefits, with all, of the, all that affluence offers us, that that should diminish the worry and anxiety. That should answer the question for people, right. will everything be okay? And, the, right. and what we're seeing in our culture is so many young people and adults who are saying, no, no, everything's not going to be okay. In fact, I am so worried about how things are going to go that suicide looks like a good option for me. So the, the other thing that's interesting is that college counseling centers have been sort of washed over by this tsunami of anxiety among students. Yeah. They, you have personal experience, Lucy. I know you know uh, friends at college who wanted to go get counseling, and they had to wait mm -hmm. two months yeah, right. I had I had friends who um, wanted to go see a counselor, and our our school offers free counseling. And um, they called, and they were put on like a wait list. They didn't get in to see a counselor for like a month and a half, two months. Wow! Um, and that's even during the summer. I know they're still having to wait weeks to see a counselor. So we are facing a crisis in our Western culture around anxiety, and it's all centered around this question: Will everything be okay? One of the uh, ways that I look at this issue is I, I think the common thread here is an inability to leave behind these sort of stuck patterns of destructive thinking. Uh, the one answer for why it's possible that you can live in affluence but wonder every day, is everything going to be okay, is that there's an interior narrative going on that is destructive and is planting seeds of doubt as to whether everything's going to be okay. So. Your, you know, Lucy, here's a big question for you. Your generation's been given, like I've just said, more than any other. So why do you think everyone is so worried? Why, yeah. why is that? It's a big question. And there's, you know, hundreds of researchers and psychologists that are trying to answer that question. But from my experience, I feel like, from my experience, I think anxiety and depression have a 
strong correlation to the amount of technology and media um, that is kind of inundating our culture because first it fills up all of our margins so that you don't have time to even think or process but it also is a continual place for comparison a continual place that can add to people's stress because they're not doing you know what this person's doing or they don't look as beautiful as this person and off of that then school um, there's like this rising pressure to do well in school and so you can get a good job so you can make it you know enough money so that you can have a good life and I think a lot of that is perpetuated by seeing things on social media and technology that kind of create this create a culture of anxiety and a culture of perfectionism and like needing to do better and not feeling good enough and constantly comparing yourself. Yeah. And I, I really resonate with all that stuff. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive to think that especially young people today could be so full of anxiety and worry, but it's, it's also true that adults are locked in this, in the grip of this anxiety as well that uh, the epidemic isn't just among young people. And so I I thought one thing that would be interesting here is to kind of look, at least initially, through the portal of this Camp Barnabas experience, because I think it's kind of an extreme version of of what we're talking about in a way, because we took our small group to Camp Barnabas. Now, Lucy was already there serving for six weeks, but we took our group there to serve for a week. And um, these young people had heard stories about this camp for years. Uh, many of them, because they they heard these stories from Lucy or from Emma, my my younger daughter, who's been there, who was there last year, uh, as well. And they heard these stories, and they can be scary stories. Like they can be like, "Oh my gosh, um, how how could I ever do what I just heard Lucy said she did?" Uh, it can be very daunting. And so when we were leaving to go to Camp Barnabas, there were several kids who were outwardly saying. I'm really terrified by what what (laughs) we're about to do. And then they show up and they find out the camper they're going to get assigned to. And then they go through a second wave of terror (laughs) because they read what issues their campers has. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to do that? And so for some of those kids, it's really not okay for the first couple of days. And I'm sure you see that every week when you see a new crop of teenagers coming in there, Lucy, that they're really almost like deer caught in the headlights. Like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten into? Uh, This is going to be overwhelming, the hardness of what I have to do. Explain a little bit about what you see in them, maybe even going back to when you first showed up at the camp the very first time. What's going on inside of you when you enter into this very challenging environment? What do you see in the kids? What do you see in yourself? Yeah, I think the first thing is – you're coming in and everything is kind of like hypothetical, like, oh, you're going to get a camper and, you know, and they might have this or they might, you know, they might be this and you don't know. And so it seems very like, oh, that's going to be in the future. And then I see every week missionaries get paired with a camper and all of a sudden they're reading about their camper and they realize, oh my goodness, this is a real person. And I have to be responsible. Like I have to take care of this person for a week. And there's just like a panic that sets in of like, I am not qualified for this. I cannot handle this, and now I'm, like, in too deep. I've got a person that I'm supposed to be with for an entire week, and I always tell my missionaries the night before campers come, I tell them, just so you know, the first days, the first, because the 
campers come at like four o'clock in the afternoon. So I always tell them the first night is normally hard and it's scary and you feel overwhelmed. It's okay. It will pass. You'll have an amazing week. But if you feel that the first day, it's normal. Everyone feels it. And you know, without fail, campers come and all of a sudden, then there's all this excitement. All of a sudden you're with your camper and then you go to dinner and you're like, maybe my camper doesn't communicate through words or um, my camper just had a seizure or I'm pushing my camper up a hill and I've never pushed a wheelchair before. And so there's all these like, oh my gosh, just the overwhelming like feeling of I've got a person I am taking care of. I am not ready for this is what I see. And then there's because I'm in a girl cabin, there's always tears, always a missionary cries the first night, because they're just like, I can't do this, I can't, um, like, this is too much for me, um, and, like, this is way above what I think I'm capable of, and it's really powerful to watch that first day, and me look at them, and be like, you're gonna do this, and you're gonna get through this, it's gonna be great, and the last day, they're crying, because they don't want to leave camp, because they love their camper so much, and they had the most powerful week of their lives. I think it's really important, a word you just used, the, the feeling of being overwhelmed. So we can sit and say, especially if Lucy, like what you've been through, when you look at other people in normal suburban culture, and maybe yeah. you hear someone say, oh, I was overwhelmed by that. And you think, oh my gosh, how could you be overwhelmed by that? When you should see what I've experienced. You can, <laughs> you can think in that sort of comparison way. But the right. bottom line is, if you feel overwhelmed, you're overwhelmed, period. Right. No right. matter what it is. And I think that is a, a key foundational thing for this whole question of will everything be okay? We have a, this fundamental doubt deep down inside that no, it won't be okay because I'm overwhelmed. By what's yeah, happened. and I think with overwhelmed, that's something I had to learn at camp because I would have certain weeks where I have campers that would need a lot more assistance and would be um, campers that had some difficult things happening. And so I'd see, you know, a missionary with a camper that's like punching them in the face and they're overwhelmed. And like, yes, you should be overwhelmed. Like that's a hard thing if you never had somebody punch you in the face. And then the next week I'll have a missionary who's crying and their camper's the sweetest thing ever and like hasn't presented any anything right now, but they're still overwhelmed. And having to say to that missionary, your feelings and your feeling overwhelmed is extremely valid. And it's it's okay that you feel overwhelmed with, you know, this camper when, you know, I saw other campers that, you know, there was a lot more things that had to go into serving them. And so having to realize, like, it doesn't matter what it is. If you feel overwhelmed, that emotion is valid. Yeah, and you can't, you can't compare your way out of feeling overwhelmed, right. no matter what situation in life you're in. It just doesn't work to say, well, I shouldn't feel overwhelmed because so-and-so is doing this. It right. never works that way, and Jesus doesn't intend it to. I, th I think it's interesting, too, that I was just thinking about this, that um, uh, so my younger daughter, Emma, this was her second summer of going to serve for a week, and last year she had this fantastic experience. She loved her camper. Emma is extremely verbal. She's like the most verbal person in our family, <laughs> and she's highly energetic. And yeah. she shows up at camp and finds out the camper she's assigned to is nonverbal, which means she doesn't speak. She's also deaf, and she has Down syndrome. And immediately, Emma's, her first thought was like, oh my gosh, this is a total mismatch for me. And, right. and even uh, Bev, her, Emma's mom, <laughs> She ran to just kind of ran to you, Lucy, and said, Lucy, Emma's got a camper that is like a total mismatch for her. Why don't you explain that story and what you said to mom? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, my mom runs up and she's it's like the first the first day before the campers even come, but Emma's already been assigned her camper. 
And she looks at me and she goes, Emma's got a nonverbal camper. Like, you need to fix that. <laughs> I was like, what? She goes, no, no, you need to, you need to get her, you need to go and talk to her cabin staff, get her a different camper because like Emma's such a verbal processor. Like Emma talks all the time. Like, this is not going to be good for her. Like you need to give her a different camper. And I just looked at her and, you know, at this point, like I'm very much in my element at camp. I'm very like calm at camp. So I just looked at her and I was like, mom, it's going to be okay. Like, I promise this is, I just felt such a peace about Emma being with this camper. I was like, wow, this is going to be perfect. Like, I'm so glad she has a camper that's outside her comfort zone and completely different than her camper last year, who was, her camper last year was very verbal. And my mom looked at me, was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this is, this is not good. Like, and I just looked at her and I was like, hey, like, this is actually perfect. Like, I cannot think of a more perfect camper for Emma this year than someone that's completely different than last year and going to challenge her in different ways. Like, um, and I just promised her, because there was other missionaries that my mom knew about that um, were kind of like freaking out and having a hard time the first day. And, and I just looked at her and I said, you have to trust God in this because I promise you by midway through the week, they're going to be having so much fun. They're going to absolutely love their camper. They're not going to want to leave. Yeah, and, and that's really true. That's what happened with Emma. She, by yeah. the end of the week, she at, she had actually learned sign language at camp so she could communicate. Well, better with very little, camp. but yes. Very little, but, but yeah, enough to get by. And yeah. she absolutely loved her time with that, with that camper. Yeah. She, she actually said she loved this time with her camper more than her camper last year. Not because, you know, just because with this camper this year, she said, um, like last year, everyone loved her camper and everyone could communicate with her camper. But this year she had this special connection with her camper where she like knew her camper better than anyone and knew how to communicate with her better than anyone in the cabin um, and end up like loving it. And my mom looked at me at the end of the week and was like telling me about some, some people that like at the start of the week, she was like, they're not even going to make it through the week who then were like, I want to come back another week this summer. And just having that sense of like, yep, this is how camp works. I see it every single week. Missionaries don't want to be there. They're scared. They can't do this. And by the end of the week, you see how God's like transformed them. And they all of a sudden love camp, love their camper, don't want to leave. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about this is we're really talking about uh, sort of a CSI situation where you're investigating the pathology of going from overwhelmed to uh, a, a sense of uh, a peace, not peace that's quiet or restful, but a peace that has sort of a quiet confidence to it, this pathway yeah. from feeling overwhelmed to that. And you're, you're losing now an experienced leader at this extremely challenging camp. So you can rely on your experience and your skills and all the stuff you've learned right. to kind of tell yourself, oh, everything's going to be okay because I've been through this before. But right. so what would you say is the role of control in our response to, will everything be okay? Like, um, do we only allow ourselves to say, yes, everything will be okay when we feel in control? Is that how that works? Yeah. Well, I think, no, I think it's much more... Um, well, going back to like something dead that you say all the time that still impacts me, um, like trust the heart of the storyteller for he is telling a good story. Like that always gets me. And I think the level of control is it doesn't matter the situation you're in. Um, I'm going to like trust and like know that it's okay, not because of circumstances, not because of like what expertise I have or what, um, what I have to bring to the table, but by, um, 
knowing that I know God's heart is good. If I know God's heart is good, then I can rest in that and not worry about what that means or what then he's going to do in my life. I can just um, let go because I know whatever it is, he is good and is going to create good. I think that's a great stepping off point here into uh, a few encounters that Jesus had where uh, I think he highlights the, the question, will everything be okay? And shows us by how he, how he relates to the people in these encounters, uh, what the answer to that question is. Will everything be okay? Well, Jesus does have an answer for it, but it's not the one we think. So I, th I think it's a good stepping off point here to jump into a, couple, a few of these encounters. The first one is in Matthew chapter 14. It's in, uh, it starts in verse 22. And this is a story I'm sure you've heard since you were a kid. Um, growing, if you grew up in the church, you for sure have heard this story. But I want us to slow down and pay attention to it, uh, looking at this story through the filter of this question, will everything be okay? Because this is definitely the question that Jesus' disciples were thinking about in this story. So put yourself in their shoes in this situation, and let's see what we can extract from how Jesus responds to them in this story. So it's again, it's in Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Here's how it goes. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. So the first thing we know is that Jesus wanted his disciples to leave on purpose. He wanted to be alone and sending the people home without them. So he sends them off onto the lake and says, I'll meet you on the other side. They don't even know how, they're, how he's going to get there. <laughs> they just follow his instructions and get in the boat. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble, far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I'm here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he, he, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. And after they had crossed the lake, they landed at Genesaret, where when the people recognized Jesus, the news of his arrival spread quickly throughout the whole area, and soon people were bringing all their sick to be healed. They begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe and all who touched him were healed. So here we have this apocalyptic epic story about Jesus uh, sending the disciples off on their own, then walking uh, really past them um, through these heavy waves late at night. It looks so bizarre. So this is really a recipe for terror. <laughs> so, and it says the disciples were terrified. So the effect of this, uh, I think we shouldn't lose sight of this. Jesus understood human beings and he understood that in the middle of the night when your boat's being swamped by waves and you're in the middle of a storm and you see a guy walking past you in the middle of the night that could be terrifying so when we're terrified by something we're pretty much convinced that everything's not going to be okay so lucy let's just pause just for a second 
and list off some things for you and me that are like that in our lives. It's like what what feels terrifying sometimes to both of us and why? And I can go first if that's too daunting a question. Yeah, you go first. I gotta I go think. First. I think the the one the thing that I do a lot, and I'm going to be in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be speaking at a camp for a whole week uh, with about 200 teenagers there. And I have a very unusual way of engaging people, as you guys who listen to the podcast know. It's more risky the way I engage people. I don't just speak at people. Um, and so when you've never had me do that before with your group, it can be really like, what is he doing? It's, it's very unexpected. So at this point, when I'm two weeks out, I have this kind of dull ache in my gut that always is there whenever I'm about to, to do anything like this. And that dull ache is, what if I really screw this up? What if something that I do that I know works in one setting really bombs in this setting? What if I'm the worst speaker they've ever had at this camp? That, that is a real thing inside of me. And it drives me to sort of a desperate kind of dependence on Jesus because I have this sense inside that I could really for legit screw everything up and really miss the the connection that I need to make there. And it never goes away no matter how many times I do this. So that has yeah. to be in me a, a terror I face. And really the terror is universal. It's the fear of failure. It's the feel of being exposed as a failure. You didn't just fail in something, you are a failure. <laughs> That's one of the deepest terrors I think we have as human beings, and it's certainly true for me. Hmm. Yeah, I think one that I would say I have is like a terror for like the future because um, so I'm very much in a stage of life where there's a lot focused on what my future is going to look like. I'm kind of have picked a very non-traditional route in college because I'm a double major in English and nursing with a minor in Spanish, which is very out there, not how people normally do it. I love it, but the end goal is to be a nurse practitioner. But um, there's definitely this like tear that will come, I don't know, this rising like anxiety that comes up in me if I think about it for too long because I'm like, there's so many steps before I get there and I have no idea what my future is going to look like. And what if I work so hard and then I don't end up liking what I'm doing or just this fear of, I don't know what my future is going to look like. And I really wish I could just control it and make it exactly the image I have in my head. And I know I can't do that. And I don't know half the things that are going to happen to me in the next two years. And so, um, and there's kind of, I have to have a constant tension with like, okay, God, I'll give this to you. And then I want to take it back. And they're like, nope, nope, this is too scary. Like um, just this this fear of um, I'm going to get it wrong. Like maybe I don't want to be a nurse or, you know, I, or I'm going to screw something up. Um, and just this fear of the unknown or of missing it somehow, like missing what I'm supposed to be doing or. Yeah, you know, we're not, we're not in the, on a boat that's being swamped by waves in the middle of the night we see a ghost walk past us. We're not there, yeah. but the terror is similar. There, yeah. yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking, another, for me, a terror that has been true from when I was a little kid is this fear of not being seen well, yeah. that, I'm, that I'm sort of invisible, and yeah. that either I'm invisible or that the way people see me is not true to who I am, Yeah, and it's, un, it's, a, it's almost a debilitating 
kind of fear sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I know you and I have talked about this before. Yeah, it's definitely been a fear I've had too of feeling invisible or feeling like I'm not seen well and people like miss seen, like who I am has been missed. And because of that, no one wants to be around me because they've missed who I actually am. And yeah, that fear of like not being accepted or just not having, like being invisible, like um, not being important enough for people to even know who I am or pay or pay ridiculous attention to yeah yeah and if I if they do pay attention to me they miss who I am and they misread things about me and then come up with things that they think are true about me that aren't and this kind of like fear of like needing to prove myself to prove that that's not who I am or yeah Yeah, it's the fear of living in someone else's alternative narrative about you yeah usually not a good one (laughs) but you know what's interesting about this uh this terror that we share, that all human beings share, whether it's physical terror or emotional terror, like we're talking about, Jesus not only enters into his disciples' terror, if you think about the story we just read, he causes it in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> so why, why do you think Jesus would actually set off their terror, Lucy? What, what, what are some possible reasons why Jesus would do that? Uh, with them anything pop into your head yeah well it's interesting because we've talked about this before and just like the piece of like everything jesus does is intentional and he knows um what he's doing he never just like whoops didn't mean for that to happen like he's very (laughs) intentional and so he's not so as you said like walking on the water he knew this is probably not going to look too great from their perspective like you know he had so many other ways of doing things but instead he chose to like kind of scare them and he did it intentionally and so I think with that there's something to be said for if um if Jesus had not scared them I don't think Peter would have ever asked to walk out onto the water with him because it was kind of like uh at least from my perspective it's like he had this shock of adrenaline from not knowing who it was and then it's Jesus and then he's like oh ask me out on the water and I think for Peter's story it was crucial that he had an encounter where he was able to walk on water and then also see what happens when he stopped looking at Jesus and started actually realizing what was around him and he I think it's crucial for his story that he was asked out on the water by Jesus and I don't know if that would have happened if Jesus had it kind of put the fear of God in them. You know, what's interesting about this too, I'm just thinking back to your Barnabas experience and how these young people get sort of introduced to terror yeah. <laughs> by the very experience of Barnabas. And the way you described that, Lucy, of how you've seen it over and over again as these young people move through their terror to exhilaration, to yeah. joy, because they have been dragged into the very thing they fear right. could dismantle them. And also one of the most profound parts of Barnabas for me and why I keep going back year after year is for the missionaries, the high schoolers, because something profound happens for them at camp. All of a sudden they're put in an environment where they're not with their phones, they're not with their friends, they're serving selflessly for the first time, they're outside their comfort zone, they're doing things that are scary, all these big things. And about day three, I, in my kind of like Bible study with the high schoolers, I do this kind of lie night where we write down lies that we've been believing about ourselves and then we talk about and we basically 
cast Satan out and say, Satan, you don't have power over these lies. Like we won't believe these lies about ourselves anymore. And it's extremely powerful. And every week I have at least one missionary come up to me and like share their life story with me or say something like, I've never shared this with anyone before, or I never thought God loved me until now. These like huge transformational things happen. And I've only known these girls for three, four days. Um, but why, I always like to say, what would take outside of Barnabas, it would take months for me to get to that place with these girls where they would share that. It takes three days at Barnabas because it's such an all intensive, immersive environment. And so what it would take months and months of me pursuing their heart and pursuing their story for them to share, they share in three or four days because of the environment they're in. It's so good to, to now connect that back to the story. So Jesus sends them out intentionally alone, knowing that they're going to face storms that night and knowing what he intends. I'm going to walk across the water past them in the middle of the night. Clearly, he's very intentional about putting them into this highly compact, terrifying experience. And, yeah. uh, and it's exactly what you're describing, really, Lucy. He could spend months doing this, or he could plunge them into their terror. Right. And then show up. And his answer to their terror, if you think about this, is subtly profound. He doesn't explain himself. He doesn't explain what he's doing or why he chose to do this. He simply reveals himself. What he says to them to answer their fear is, it's all right, I'm here. He doesn't say, it's all right, the storm's almost over. It's all right, you're not going to sink. It's all right, you're not going to die. He says, it's all right, I'm here, so don't be afraid. Right. Their, their peace, he's saying, is tied to my presence here, not your circumstances. So, and that's so true of our own terrors, our own questions about are everything going to be okay? We demand and crave circumstantial answers to that. Will I pass this class? Will I get an A on this test? Will I be able to take care of this camper for a whole week? Will I have to go home because I can't do it? Those are circumstantial answers we're craving, but Jesus answers our circumstantial question, is everything going to be okay, with a non-circumstantial answer, which is, I'm here, don't be afraid. Right. And there's, there's something about that assurance that our our peace has really is is not intricately tied to our circumstances that that our peace is tied to his presence mm-hmm. that has the ability to unlock our joy like nothing else it's not like that like go back to barnabas again it's not like these kids suddenly see oh this isn't that hard to take care of a camper oh mm-hmm. actually it gets harder sometimes during the week it, it's not that their circumstances are proving to them that everything is going to be okay. It's that they have felt the strength of Jesus in the midst of their challenge. Right. And that has what's given them peace. Exactly. Yeah. And it's funny that we go through this story because I actually read this story the first night um, with missionaries before the campers have come. And I read this story out because um, – what I focus on is there's kind of three different things that Jesus does. The storm starts and he's like on the hill praying. And then the second thing is he's walking on the water and he calls Peter out into the water. And then the third one is he gets into the boat and stops the storm. And I kind of talk about with my missionaries how like in different seasons of your life, God is going to respond differently to you and giving you different things because you need different things. And sometimes he's going to be like on the shore 
praying for you and you're going to feel like you're in the storm alone and you're like, God, you left me. He didn't leave you. He's praying for you and he's there. His presence is there just in a different way. And then there's sometimes where he's calling us out into the storm. He's asking us to step out of the boat. And then there's other times when he's like, okay, enough. I'm getting in the boat with you. I'm going to stop the storm. And I think oftentimes our reaction when we are asking, is everything going to be okay? Is we're like, is Jesus going to step into the boat for me? Um, and that's like <clears throat> the only response we want from him is we want him to step into our boat and stop the storm. And that's what we define as everything is okay. Um, but everything is okay um, can also mean, you know, can also be Jesus calling you out into the storm and being like, hey, step out of the boat with me. Um, or hey, it's going to feel like you're alone, but you're not. I'm there, but I'm praying for you. And I'm advocating and interceding on your behalf with God. Um, and those are just as, and and I just talked to the missionaries about this week is kind of a God asking you to step out of the boat moment, but whatever season of life you're going into, God is doing one of these things with you. And it's not just, he's not always just going to step into the boat and stop the storm for you. That's so good. You know, there's another encounter he has in Matthew chapter six. It's really a, a, in this one, he's, he's in a long stretch of trying to reveal to the, his disciples and the crowds that have gathered. He's in this long stretch where he's kind of giving them the basics about what life is like in the kingdom of God, because he's, he's really trying to under, help them understand the foreign culture of the kingdom of God. So he's throwing out a bunch of dichotomies for them and starts out with saying, you, you know, things like you've heard it said this way. But actually, I say this, and he's comparing things that are normal and accepted and treasured in the kingdom of the earth to the normal, accepted, treasured things in the kingdom of God. So right in the middle of all that, he, uh, he talks about directly about worry and anxiety. This is in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. I'm just going to read a little portion of this. Here's what he says. Um, this is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Well, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? So here Jesus is calling out the things that we worry about sort of on a basic level, an everyday level. And, and I think it has to be said, first of all, that our fundamental needs in life, you know, will we have enough money to live? Will we have food and clothing and relationships? These, these things are not things that we're – Jesus is telling us, oh, you shouldn't ever be concerned about these things. He knows human beings are wired to be concerned about these things. It's not the concern that he's trying to focus on. It's how those concerns will be met that he's trying to focus on. So – we have a sense that relative to our foundational needs that catastrophe could be waiting for us right around the corner. It's not that unusual to feel that. And Jesus's answer to this anxiety is, is fascinating. It's essentially pay attention to the created world around you. Pay attention to the things God created. Pay attention to how God takes care of things. Because I know that him taking care of you right now doesn't seem – congruent like there are many times in our lives where we don't feel like either god is paying attention or he's caring for us in the way we would like to be cared for so jesus yeah. is saying take a look at nature and see how god cares for nature because you're much more valuable than nature is to him 
So if he cares for nature in this way, you can assume that he's caring for you even more than what you've noticed. So if it's natural for us to worry about the basic things in life, um, and especially for people who don't believe in God and therefore have no one higher than themselves to trust. Uh, so Lucy, for us who say we know, love, and serve Jesus, why is worry even a part of our life still? Because it is for everybody. So yeah. if, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. if, if we know that Jesus is trustworthy, we know his heart is good, like you just said a few minutes ago, why do you think it's still a struggle for us to, to, to worry or get locked in anxiety? Yeah, I think, well, I think there's two things that I would say to that. The first is um, we're human and, you know, um, uh, we wander off and we forget. We're very forgetful and um, it's very, and we're also very visual people. And so like to have a God that is invisible, um, even though what he does is visible, at the times he is invisible it's very hard for us to put our trust in something because I think it's so much easier to put our trust in ourselves. But when we do that, then there's worry because we're going to screw up. So I think um, we're human and um, and we're going to forget. And we're going to, as much as we say, oh, I'm putting my trust in God, it's um, a continual thing. I also think it's good to mention here that um, I've talked to people that are Christians who have shame over feeling anxious or have had people say, oh, well, you're just not trusting God enough. Like you, you're, you know, you're depressed, you're anxious, but it just means you don't have a good relationship with God. And that's inaccurate. And it's, um, to, and it's, so I just, I guess that's just a disclaimer is, um, I guess mental health and like anxiety and depression aren't things that you can just will away like easily. Like lots of times that you have a chemical imbalance in your brain and that's not something that is like, Oh, I'm just not praying enough. Um, so there is a piece of, there's a chemical imbalance in your brain medically, like um, physically there's um, something that is off that's causing anxiety or depression or whatever that looks like. And that's not something that, you should feel shame over or feel like, oh, I'm not a good enough Christian or I'm not trusting God enough. So that's just a disclaimer is. Yeah, um, that's good. That's good. And, you know, think, thinking about this, the, this context of this is all, hey, you know, the, you're, you're worried about your fundamental needs. Look at these flowers. They are, they're not worried about their fundamental needs. Look at the birds. They're not worried about that because they know they have a father who cares for them. But the reality is for us, we often, maybe even every day, feel like we have unmet needs in our life. Yeah. So the story is a little bit of a disconnect because the flowers seem to be getting everything they want. We don't seem to be getting everything we want all the time. And I was thinking about this um, relative to what uh, Jesus' overarching mission in our lives is. This, this uh, claim that, that Satan lays before God in the book of Job is essentially uh, when God points out his servant Job – who's living a life of great obedience and passion for him and, uh, and is thriving in that life. So God points him out to Satan and says, look at my servant Job. Look at what he's doing. Because Satan's uh, fundamental case is that the, these creatures that you created, God, don't really love you. And he brings it up directly to God in the book of Job. He says, basically, Job would never love you the way he does if you weren't always coming through for him, right. every 
every need he has, you're meeting God. Of course, of course he quote unquote trusts you because you're, you're like a vending machine for him. So God takes up that challenge and says, all right, have at him. You'll see what's at the core of my servant Job's heart. And this is essentially what Jesus allows Satan to do with Peter as well. Uh, Satan's accusation against Peter is, yeah, look, look how you set him up as your right-hand guy. Uh, you let me at him, and you'll see what's really in his heart. And Jesus essentially says, all right, have at him. You'll see. So the only way we can really develop trust at a deep, unshakable level is when our needs don't appear to be met, and yet we trust his heart anyway. Right. That's, that's how it's di- his relationship with us is different than the relationship we, that he has with flowers and birds. He wants to develop a trust in us. Right. Well, and, you know, if you – so let's say uh, – this is a stupid example, but let's say, you know, um, every day when I get home from school, my mom has, like, a snack laid out for me. Um, and then every day, like for the, my entire life, that's every day. It's always happened that way. You couldn't really say I have a trust that my mom will always be giving me food when I get home. It's more just a knowledge of what is true and what will continue to happen. Yeah, um, you understand You understand how the formula works. Right. Trust um, only happens when you have to trust when it doesn't seem like something's going to happen or it doesn't happen the way you want it to. Um, that's the only way trust actually functions. Yeah, and Jesus, uh, Jesus does an interesting thing here throughout all of his encounters with people. He's always doing something to surface people's fundamental trust issues um, to try to get at the core of this question, will everything be okay? Not by answering it through their circumstances, by answering it again through his presence. That That's where he wants that question to be answered. So uh, in another story where the disciples are in a stormy uh, situation again, and these are experienced fishermen, some of them, and they're frightened that they're going to lose their lives, that the storm's so bad it's going to sink their boat. And Jesus is with them this time, and they look around to see what he's doing, and he's in the back of the boat taking a nap. And they're like, they go, wake him up. Jesus, don't you see we're about to die? And Jesus wakes up and says, why are you worried? I'm here. So he, he again, even in that story, his, his answer to their terror is, I'm here. It's almost like he's saying, you know, you guys, if a toddler runs up to you promising to blow you over with this like one big puff of air, well, you might react in mock fear, but you're not really afraid that that toddler's going to blow you over by blowing on you. And Jesus is kind of that way with the storm. He's not really afraid that that storm can do anything to him. So he's present in the midst of their terror, and he's trying to speak to another reality that they can't see in that moment. They don't see how transcendent he is over circumstances, storms, everything. They just don't get it because they're human beings just like us. So Lucy, just to to transition into closing off here, if we think about our everyday life and thinking about how we deal with this question, will everything be okay? And the anxieties and worries that come with that, um, I thought it'd be interesting if you could do a condensed version of this the story of you sort of uh, swimming out in the pool to try to uh, provide safety for a camper who'd gone renegade in the, in the pool. And the, the pool at Camp Barnabas is enormous. I think her name was Grace. Is that right? Escaped into the deep end of the pool. 
Um, could you just briefly explain what happened there? Basically, we had a camper named Grace who was very sweet. She had Down syndrome, though, and um, was prone to hit when she didn't like what was going on. Um, so the whistle was blown saying, everyone, it's time to get out of the pool. And Grace did not want to get out of the pool. She was in the shallow end of the pool, and it was a huge pool. And I walked up to her with her missionary and said, hey, Grace, time to get out of the pool. And she was like, no. And she started swimming deeper into the pool. And um, so we started swimming with her and we kept saying, Grace, we got to get out of the pool. And every time we got close to her, she would try to hit us or try to slap us or um, spray water at us. And so we kept swimming and she ended up going into the way deep end. So then we're treading water with her in the deep end, trying to get her out. And we had a lifeguard trying to help us. And we were probably in the pool for 30, 40 minutes trying to get Grace out of the pool. I remember when you told me that story, I thought of it metaphorically also, like this is a good picture of us and Jesus. We are just like Grace. Uh, Jesus may say, hey, uh, it's time to get out now. It's time to move away from this. And we choose differently. We jump back in the pool. We think we're in control. We think we know what's best. And he pursues us, but he doesn't pursue us to force us. That, that's one of the profound things about what you do at that camp. You don't force these campers. You, yeah. you come alongside them. You're, you're present around them to try to guide and direct them toward the right thing. But it's so much like us that we don't even know we're in need sometimes. Well, I think just a short, better story to illustrate that. I had a camper who did not want to eat or drink water. And she also had Down syndrome. And we were trying to get her into the dining hall. And she was sitting in the middle of the road. And it was very hot. It's Missouri in the middle of the summer. So it's very hot. And she's sitting there with her head on her feet, not wanting to move. And we knew that she was really hungry and thirsty. She hadn't drank or ate water in a very, very long time. And she, cause she skipped breakfast and like she skipped dinner the night before, like she did not want to eat. And we knew, well, you probably don't feel very well right now, Sarah. And that's probably because you haven't ate or drank anything in a while. And um, we just kept saying to her, Sarah, like, if we go into the dining hall, we can get you water. And she kept saying no and no. And, and it was just hard. It was just hard to look at her and be like, we have the thing that'll make you feel better, but you don't, you're stubborn. You don't want to get it. And so that was a good reminder for me of like times when God's been like, hey, Lucy, I've got living water for you. All you got to do is walk into the dining hall. And I'm like, nope, I'd rather sit in the hot sun on the blacktop and sit here in my misery. And the one thing is we couldn't pick Grace up and carry her into the dining hall because she would not drink water if we forced her to. We had to just sit there and wait. And that's how God is. And he's more patient than I am and will wait with us on that blacktop our whole lives if it takes our whole life. And his waiting is as form of pursuit. It's not just waiting, biding time. It's you have to wait. He has to wait on us in order to pursue us. Or else he's going to violate our, the freedom that we that he's given us in our will. Uh, he won't violate that, and so his pursuit often looks like waiting, even when we don't know that we have a need. He sees the need, but we don't. We push him away because he seems to be intruding into something that we don't really want him to intrude into, and we don't recognize he's actually there to help us with our the need that we can't see. And the, the common thread I find in this, and even with what you had to do in both of these situations, Lucy, your mission in both of those situations is to stay connected to that camper, to yeah. be present in their life in that moment until they are, you're able to almost artfully open them to the need to, to receive the need that they have. 
to receive help for the need they have. So I, I think it's profound how Jesus plants metaphors like that to remind us of the reality of what he's trying to do in our life. So the, the other thing, so, so thinking about this then, um, when we say, is everything going to be okay? We can change the way we think about that question from, uh, yes, circumstantially, I wish everything would be okay. But our real okay must go a lot deeper than that. And if we can recognize that the real okay that we crave is really the presence of Jesus, then when we're in the midst of, will everything be okay, we can ask him to enter in with us. Uh, I've now, I'm in my late 50s now, I sometimes am aware enough to be able to say when I'm in a place where I feel terrified and not sure everything's going to be okay, that my fundamental default response is not Jesus solve my problem, but Jesus be here with me. I need to sense your presence with me now. I need to know that you're swimming out to the deep end. Even if I'm pushing you away, I need to know you're coming after me. I need to know you'll wait on the blacktop in the middle of the sun with me. I need you in order to get through this. And that is fundamentally what we need. And the, I think the other thing we can do is, is confront that interior narrative that we have inside and, again, invite Jesus to edit that narrative. If, if we have a narrative inside that says, if this happens, then this is going to happen, then we know that we're locked into this question of, is everything going to be okay? But Jesus is a storyteller. And he wants to tell a different story in us. And so uh, we can invite him to write our story, to, to confront the interior narrative that we have embraced and tell a different story in us. So I think this is why Jesus said to us so bluntly, hey, you guys, you're going to do the things I do and even greater things. He's really confronting the interior narrative that we have that says, I'm not worth anything. I can't do anything. Is my life even of value? He's saying the story I'm writing in your life is that you're going to actually do the things I do and even greater things. That's the story I want to plant in your life. Will you let me edit the interior narrative that you're embracing now? That's the big question for us. Will we open our hands and invite him to edit that interior narrative? Well, I'm so, so glad you were able to do this with me today. And I'm glad I was able to be a part of it. It's so great. And we'll, whenever we can, we'll, um, we'll have Lucy join us again. So, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember to check out The God Who Fights For You. just came out. Uh, you can find it on Amazon or any place you'd like to buy your books. Um, and please at least tell others about it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, so on. Uh, I need every little bit of help I can get to invite people into a different kind of relationship with Jesus. And that's what this book, The God Who Fights For You, will do. So especially if you have friends who are have gone through a great struggle in life or in the midst of it right now, this book will resonate with them in a way that is unique. So I encourage you to check it out and uh, tell your friends about it in, in social media. That would be a big help. Also, you can find out more about this episode by going to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You're looking for season four episode 26. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play or anywhere you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. Thanks again, Lucy. 